Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is really like. I'm your host James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by ecologist, mammologist, and PhD candidate Charlotte Mills. Charlotte, thanks for coming on the podcast. No worries, James. Good thanks for to be here. Thanks for coming at late notice. Yeah, instant, instantaneous. <laughs> well, we're here at the. Uh, the Conference of the Ecological Society of Australia and also New Zealand, EcoTAS. Yeah, it's been a good conference so far, hasn't it? I think so. No, at the conference yesterday, you said something to me, which was very depressing. Essentially, you just emphatically stated that Australia is a mammal-less continent. Yeah, I guess where I come from when I say that is um, a lot of the ecology that we've developed in Australia a lot of stuff that's 20 30 years old comes out come out of that initial like burst of science that we did came out of the highly populated areas mm-hmm. which were in New South Wales Victoria yeah and they tend to be pretty devoid of mammals really so even though a lot of these people recognize in their work that there's mammals missing from the systems they're studying mm-hmm. they they're missing. They're, they're so we're talking not just mammals, but little marsupial yeah, things, right? Yeah, small things. Yeah. yeah. No, so kangaroos, obviously, are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk more about that later. But small things like there's native rodents, there's marsupial things about the same size as rodents. Mm-hmm. So we've got uh, hopping mice. There used to be five species of betong, which is like a small kangaroo right. um, in New South Wales. And now there's one and it's in a very, very small area. Mm. So there's this, been this crazy extinction and contraction of range and um, local extinction of, of mammals in a lot of the areas that we're doing a lot of science. So Is that simply because of... Urban expansion and habitat destruction. Yeah, these these mammals sort of. Um, it was. I think it was a multi-pronged destruction for them. Um, people killed them. Mm-hmm. So things like I mentioned those betong things before. They actually ate people's gardens and farms and crops and stuff. <laughs> so people would go out there and there were bounties on their heads. Wow. Um, but uh, other things sort of had their habitat destroyed through livestock grazing Mm -hmm. and then other things again the introduction of foxes and now cats Mm. was real um a real kick for them bad kind of kick and so we have this combination of factors where we've got uh, less mammals in sort of very populated places like new south wales and victoria but also lots of research being done in those areas yeah, exactly. So there might be some things that we've missed over time because the researchers lacked these the mammals in the systems that are being studied. And it's not necessarily um, that we've missed them and they're still there so they matter. It's sort of like this thing that we're studying the evolution of or mm. studying the, um, the purpose of or the way it interacts with parts of its environment may have had another role that we're dismissing now because we th- because those mammals aren't there to show us that role. Mm, so our, like our, our baseline knowledge of the ecology of mammals is a bit skewed because we're looking at them yeah, in areas where they're not. Yeah, ecology of everything that mammals might interact with. Yeah, and you're looking specifically at 
seeds? I'm well. My so my PhD project is about how the loss of these mammals、mm-hmm. may have contributed to some of the changes in vegetation we've seen. Okay, how for a non-scientist, what's the connection between mammals and well plants? Mammals eat plants, and they、mm-hmm. eat plant seeds.、Mm-hmm. So instantly, they're removing things from the environment. Yeah. And maybe then giving other things an opportunity to grow, or、um, changing, yeah, you know, changing the diversity of things in an area. So, without mammals there to eat those seeds or、mm. those plants, it's possible that there's more of those plants around,、mm-hmm. and maybe now we recognise that they're a problem. So there's a there's a thing called shrub encroachment that a、mm-hmm. lot of landholders in New South Wales and some parts of Queensland、um, are constantly trying to deal with because there's this huge increase in the number of these woody shrubs on their properties,、mm-hmm. and every time they knock them down, they spring back up and all this kind of stuff, and they're just. But then when we go to South Australia, where there's still some of these mammals.、Mm-hmm. We don't see that problem. Okay, and these aren't necessarily like invasive. Pest shrubs or anything. They're native species.、Mm-hmm. They've just increased to a point where people really don't want them there. Okay. Yeah. And do we think it's probably simply because, in a more natural setting, there would be mammals keeping them un- under control by eating their seeds? Yeah. So、um, one of my predecessors in in my lab,、mm-hmm. my research lab, has shown that. Hopping mice and rabbits, which would have once been more like a betong in the same system,、mm-hmm. um, eat the seeds and the seedlings of these shrubs. Okay. And so, where we don't have those animals,、yeah. those shrubs are free to free to take control. So, is it as simple as, as just reintroducing these mammals somehow? Well, those things that kick kick those mammals out in the first place. Are still there, so so farms and cats and yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so foxes are expensive to control, but we can do it.、Mm-hmm. It's been shown by programs in the Flinders Ranges. They've successfully got they've got a successful population of yellow-footed rock wallabies、mm-hmm. because they constantly bait for foxes. But it's a really expensive program.、Mm-hmm. Um, so. For a whole state to do something like that is a, it's a big deal,、mm-hmm. and then you've got issues like cats, feral feral cats, which are the same as domestic cats. They're just not at home, <laughs> <laughs> and they're voracious killers and stuff. They, they there's a few of them around,、yeah. and they kill. <laughs> they're good at eating things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they're very hard to control. And then you've got yeah the fact that we have changed a lot of the habitat. Mm-hmm. And we're continuing to do that. But you're not necessarily looking at this stuff in、uh, really disturbed habitats. You're not looking at air, urban areas. You're do,、no. uh, doing this stuff in the desert. Yeah, yeah. I actually I go out to the desert a lot,、mm-hmm. um, and I love it out there. As my my area is the big red sand dunes、mm-hmm. in the Stresliki Desert and near Roxby Downs in South Australia. Yeah, and.、Um, I like playing in the sand, and I've got some experiments <laughs> out there. So、um, the idea is that I'm working areas where those mammals still are, 
so okay. I can see what they are actually doing. Mm. I've got some exclusion fences up where I keep the animals out okay. of a small area mm -hmm. and I can look at the seed bank. So um, I, I get some sand from my exclusion fences and I grow that in the glasshouse. Mm -hmm. I count the plants that grow from it All right. because some of these animals are probably important seed predators, mm -hmm. but we don't really know what they do with that. They don't really know how important they are with that. It's funny, you'd think of, of seed predation as being almost like a disservice to an ecosystem. Yeah, but if you're taking out like certain things and then ants are also important seed predators and dispersers, so they take out other things and mm. sort of it all sort of works in its own way. Mm. So it is, yeah, they're eating, they eat stuff. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. It might be helping those things be the way they are. Yeah. And you're also looking at things like dingoes as well and how they can play a role in, I guess, ecosystems, right? And these yeah. very sort of complex interactions. Yeah. I, I, so the dingo stuff um, uh, stuff that is really led by my supervisor mm -hmm. who has been working on them for a long time. And he's shown, so that paper I talked about earlier where rabbits and hopping mice eat the seeds of these shrubs mm -hmm. and the seedlings of these shrubs, yeah. that is because there's dingoes in an area protecting those animals from predation by cats and foxes because dingoes sort of like kill or um, scare away mm -hmm. cats and foxes in a lot of... Um, where, where they're allowed to persist. But okay. those sheep grazing, sheep grazing areas like New South Wales and Victoria mm -hmm. have been protected from dingoes because dingoes also eat sheep. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's meant that we've got all these, these consequences from that loss of dingoes. And it's fascinating because a lot of the work I do is out there where the dingoes still are. And to get there, you have to pass through the area where there's no dingoes. And <laughs> you instantly, like you can stand on this fence that's been built to keep dingoes out. And it's the longest fence in the world, so it's an amazing concept. Mm. Just to have the longest fence in the world, and it's 5,000 kilometres long, and it keeps out dingoes because sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's crazy. But you stand on that fence line, and you can see the difference instantly, and it's just... So what, what do you see? What's, what's you see more shrubs on one side. You see a whole lot more grass where there's dingoes, but, okay. but shrubs where there's no dingoes. So the vegetation's different. Um, the mammals are different. So you got when you go spotlighting at night in New South Wales, mm -hmm. you see lots of kangaroos. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a fox or a cat if you're, <laughs> if you're lucky. Or a deer or some, yeah, <laughs> some other feral Depending on where thing. you are. <laughs> and then... If you go to South Australia, you see mulgaras, you see plains mice, you see hopping mice, you see dingoes. Mm. You don't see kangaroos. Uh. No. You see maybe one kangaroo where on the other side of the fence, yeah. you would see 200 kangaroos. So we've got right, like In a dingo two... habitat, you have dingoes eating medium-sized things like cats and foxes. Yeah. So that means that the little mammals can survive. The little mammals that eat seeds and suppress the shrubs. Yeah. Which yeah. means that grasslands can grow. Means, well, yeah, so the grasslands can grow because they're not 
um, because the shrubs aren't taking up some space, but they can also grow because they haven't got this constant pressure mm. from kangaroo grazing. So the kangaroos, and I, um, I'm working on some research at the moment with a lot of collaborators, so none of this is mine alone or anything, mm -hmm. but working on some research at the moment that shows that you can see this dingo fence that I'm talking about mm -hmm. if you look at the response for vegetation from space, from satellite imagery. <laughs> you can see so you don't have to stand there's on the less fence vegetation. Yeah, you can, yeah, if you've got your satellite imagery, just do it. You can look at home. Uh, yeah, I guess home. if you know where the, the dingo fence is. Yeah, that's is the it... border. This is like the border of New South Wales and South Australia, the bit mm -hmm. that we are usually crossing. Yeah. Um, but it also goes through South Australia and through Queensland. Mm. Um, but you can see from space the difference in vegetation from one side to another, basically, mm. using, using a vegetation cover from satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that's, that's insane that we've built something that just has changed, made two completely different things. Just from the Two removal of one... Yeah, the term, the term that has um, been coined in other papers is two different ecological universes. So mm. they're just different systems now. Well, I mean, even just thinking about the fact that kangaroos are so much more common on this side. It's yeah. just created another... As well, the kangaroos are an agricultural pest of their own. Right, well, and have to be culled. Yeah, a lot of people have, a lot of farmers have problems with kangaroo eating the, the feed for their livestock. Mm. And they're building cluster fences now to keep um, predators out, but also to keep kangaroos out. Because mm. when a rain happens, if the kangaroos get to that vegetation first, then they lose the opportunity to feed their livestock. So, is there, do you think there's ever a chance that the fence is going to be removed or. <laughs> Dingoes are going to be reintroduced. What? Um, I think I, d I don't believe that that's the way things are moving. Mm -hmm. No, um, dingo control is actually being increased in a lot of places, mm -hmm. and you know, if if it might not be that we need to bring dingoes back in, maybe we need to work with something, some other method of control of the problem or mm. um, what some people are working on at the moment is making the prey, these animals that have gone missing, making them aware, like able to escape predation by cats and foxes. Mm. So they're putting them in like with a low density of some of these animals and hoping and hoping that evolution sort of takes control <laughs> and <laughs> through the school of hard knocks for Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, All right. Yeah, and they're showing that they do learn. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to survive better, but that's what they're working on at the moment, which is really interesting, and it, it's sort of trying to find a solution to all those issues. Yeah. Mm. It does seem like, I don't know, it feels like one of those problems that's it's quite intimidating because it's such a big, so large-scale thing. I remember, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time in the desert, the first time I went, I was introduced to buffalo grass. Oh, that's a big issue. And just looking at this landscape of this horrendous yeah. pest grass and just thinking, is this it? Is, is, is there this anything we can possibly be? do about yeah. this? <laughs> is it going to be that we just have to accept our new world without mammals mm. and sort of 
work with what we've got? Yeah. Or is it um, like when I first started sort of working in the arid zone and I learned about all of these fenced reserves, which um, are where a lot of these animals are able to persist because they're the reserves where they have this big fence with a big floppy top and cats and foxes can't get in. Mm. So when I first learned about those fenced reserves, I was sort of and learning about how these animals really can't survive outside those fenced reserves mm. or, or on the mainland in general. So they're also on offshore islands where there's been no cats and foxes, but um, those are ma- the main places they exist. And I sort of imagine this Australia where there's a fenced reserve in the middle and it just slowly gets bigger and bigger as we get rid of all the cats and foxes from each little little mm. corridor and then we end up like having a fence... Australia sort the whole of, country. sort of spreads out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, yeah, that's that's not the solution. So they're trying to find something else to tackle that issue. Yeah. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time out in the desert, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yep. How, like as as a field ecologist, how much time is spent out in the desert as opposed to sitting at your desk? Um, I spend about half of the year away oh, but yeah. not all of that's in the desert so some mm-hmm. of that's at conferences like this um some of it's for fun but, <laughs> so i think it's usually about three or four months in the desert okay yeah and that's so you're going out to this really remote place and coming back home to sydney yeah which is the most densely populated place in australia yeah what's that like Look, the first few times I did it, oh, there's this one time I came back from like a pretty rugged field trip where I'd got bogged a few times and the flies were really <laughs> bad and I got bitten by March flies <laughs> and my legs were covered in bites from March flies and I was just like sort of wild, this wild child from the desert back in the city. <laughs> and I was walking around near my uni in the eastern suburbs and... There was a festival on at the race course. <laughs> and so there were all these people dressed in festival wear, like getting shoulder rides and drinking <laughs> in the middle of the day. And I just, I, my brain couldn't quite work that out because, yeah. you know, just being in the desert and feeling like I was living the real life. Yeah. Um, and then I came back and these people were having this, like, just a good time. And... That like that was a really hard day. <laughs> what if it's a bizarre? Yeah. You you assume it was that's such an reality. Thing to come back into. Yeah. But now I've sort of um, uh, got real about me living the real life out there because I'm not <laughs> only there for a couple of weeks at a time. It's not not the same as people who live on the land. Yeah. And um, I yeah. So now when I come back, I'm getting better at. At um, getting back into the real world, sometimes I have trouble with the the language because you get a bit um, colloquial out there. You get a bit awkward. Yeah. You get... <laughs> uh, so like going straight for a field trip to a conference can be straight, uh, a challenge sometimes. But, you know, it's good for your brain to have constant challenges, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you describe coming back to Sydney as coming back to the real world. Well, surely guess... it's not. Surely, yeah, yeah. I guess most of Australia is arid, so it could, mm. you could think of that as the real world. But um, I guess the way I work in the desert means that it's not—it's not like a sustainable 
activity so it's not my constant real thing and like family and stuff that you come home to yeah you're still living out of a suitcase when you're in the desert sort of thing yeah yeah and I sort of don't have as many responsibilities because you don't have mobile reception so you Mm. can't do anything like that and you could just have to like get through each day and tick off the field with the data collection and Mm. um make sure camps on the on the fire for dinners on the fire and the mm. tents stay up in a windstorms and you're fine <laughs> <laughs> so given the choice would you rather uh, live there or randwick what <laughs> oh, maybe there's somewhere in between i could pick <laughs> uh, i remember the most bizarre experience i had with this stuff was when i lived in singapore for a little mm. while coming back to Sydney, traveling through the middle of Sydney CBD and yeah. going, there's so much space. There's hardly any people here. <laughs> I can get a seat on this train. Wow. And just being, a, you know, I spent my whole life being so frustrated at Sydney City. Yeah, and then you finally saw the they could be worse. It could be so much worse. <laughs> and it's probably why my biggest fear for the future is, is overpopulation. Because yeah, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah, even if you could make it work economically or whatever, do you really want to live in that kind of world? Yeah, do you really want peak hour 24-7? Yeah. That's, that's what, whenever I'm in peak hour, I always have to, like, ground myself. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're kind of, how far into your PhD are you? Where are you at? Um, so... My PhD scholarship goes for three and a half years mm-hmm. because there's a three-year Australian postgraduate award and then I get a, an extra three months on that that mm-hmm. the uni sort of allows us. Um, so that finishes up in August mm-hmm. next year and I started in February 2015. So, so is there more desert I, trips coming up or are you... Um, yeah, I have a tendency to go into the field a lot. So <laughs> that's going to continue. Good. But hopefully everything else falls into place around it. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping... I'm hoping that to fit with that timeline pretty pretty smoothly. Yeah, and so is this, this project for your PhD... Was it something that fell into place or have you always wanted to work in the desert or Um, work in ecology? Always interested in how these things come about. I did my honours in the forest, but it was a very similar project in terms of looking at um, herbivory using Mm. exclusion fences. And I, after my honours, I went out into the desert just for a week with my supervisor and one of one of his um, PhD students mm-hmm. and I just loved that week. The desert's... In the desert you can see what's happening because everything's written in the sand. So there's tracks everywhere. So poetic. I love that. <laughs> there's tracks... Well, the sand also gets in your dinner so some <laughs> desert spice sometimes can um, yeah, make the mood a bit more sullen. But... Um, Everything's written in sand, so you can actually see what's happening all the time. Mm. And doing vegetation surveys can be a lot easier than the forest as well, because there's sometimes no vegetation. <laughs> so um, I, I really liked those sort of, the aspect of about being able to sort of see tracks and stuff like mm. that about the desert. And I also don't mind the heat, prefer to be hot than cold, so yeah. that, that was fine. And... Um, this, the sense of space when you're 
standing on a sand dune and there's not another person for kilometres of mm. It's pretty special. So is that it then? Are you, are you an arid ecologist for life now? No. No, I'm still very flexible. I'll, yeah. I'll always want to get out to that space mm. feeling and I'll miss it if I don't um, make it out there for a long period of time. But yeah, whatever. Whatever comes my way. Is, at this is point. there a dream habitat then you have to get to? No dream habitat, no. <laughs> gotta work, just work with what you've got, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what is it like facing the, the end of a PhD approaching? What is it, fa- what is it like? Facing? Yeah. Um, when can you start planning that next step? Yeah, that's, I actually had to ask a lot of people that because. It's sort of a stage where if I apply for jobs that are advertised now, Mm. if I got them, I'd have to start them before I finished. And I'd like to finish my PhD before I start Mm. the proper real-life job. Um, So it's sort of this sort of knowing I'm going to go into a limbo and I tried to prepare myself for that by setting up like some income sources and stuff after I finish, Mm. Um, like casual work and stuff like that. But, um, but at the moment, it's sort of like, oh, I could apply for PhD. If I see something advertised, it's hard to, hard to know what to do with it. Yeah, I mean, we talk about academic life a lot on the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it is that sort of stage where you finish your PhD and I, I call it you become a freelance scientist. You know, yeah, you're, just yeah, consulting. and Yeah, there's, there's work there. It, it's not your nine to five. Yeah. And you're sort of a, uh, you're, you're a gun for hire. If people need animals caught or data analyzed, then... You'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. So is moving into non-research stuff an option then? Always. Consulting and things, yeah. I, I like, um, I'm not set on anything. I feel like I went into the PhD um, thinking to myself, even if these are the, even if after these three to four years I don't get back out into the field again at least I'll have had three to three to four years of great field work because mm. I when I at that point in my life field work was my priority yeah um and now I've got other priorities as well because I'm always learning mm. um but certainly yeah if I get to do some more field work and or if I have to do something else it's yeah. At least I've had that opportunity and value that. Yeah, it's kind of what it's, what it is really. A PhD is not necessarily a step to a career on that particular trajectory. It used to be. <laughs> but it can be a, a three-year amazing experience. Yeah. Character my, building. <laughs> my supervisor started off with like one of his main pieces of advice was it's a choose your own adventure. So just, um, yeah, make make use of this time <laughs> so yeah. for somebody uh, starting a PhD then would you give them the same advice to make sure they're having yeah. a good time yeah <laughs> yeah I think look after yourself because well, yeah, always look after yourself because yeah. no one else is going to look after you um, <laughs> that's true it sounded very bleak but well, you know. that's, that's how the world is <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry well uh, no it's it's still, uh, I don't know, the, the world's changing and yeah, it's not as easy to walk into academic and research jobs yeah. as it was 
And that seems like you're lucky and you had a supervisor that realized that and could give that right advice of... Oh, the adventure was more like, like just do stuff when you're out, like have fun in the field and yeah. work on little things when you can and yeah. not necessarily um, that world afterwards because, like you say, the world's changed and he's... Mm-hmm. My supervisor, the world's changed since he's got into academia or maybe a little bit. And mm. I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. So it's hard for someone in a system to know what it's like outside that system. Mm. That's, yeah, that's always the, the, the cautionary tale is that when you get career advice from academics, they can only really give advice yeah. based on their experience. Yes. And if they're an academic, then it means they've been successful and they got through that gauntlet. Yes. So they're going to give you advice assuming that you're going to do the same thing. Yeah. They, they, your supervisor's always got an interest in you being successful as, at that academic aspect because yeah. that's their job and they need that, those papers or those metrics to, mm. to go up constantly. Yeah. But... Like, that doesn't mean that they haven't had a life in other ways. <laughs> really? They can, they can give you advice. Yeah, just just um, hold on to it and think about it maybe. <laughs> but, yeah, advice for a new PhD student. I, I say, like, keep it everything in perspective. That's why I like to tell people to keep those friends that are outside mm. that PhD world as, as well as making friends in your lab. And keep hobbies and well, yeah, side yeah. projects and stuff. <laughs> Side projects are great fun. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, don't get distracted. But um, you're always going to get distracted. Them, well, full like I mean, completely distracted. <laughs> Make sure you do some of the other stuff, the stuff you're supposed to do as well. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, maybe we we can check in later down the track and see okay, how this is sure. progressing, and <laughs> if you're still managing to get out into the desert and things. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to find out myself. Yep. And you mentioned if people wanted to get involved, your lab has some opportunities. Oh, yeah. So um, there's our lab has recently come into some money. And, and <laughs> that means that there are opportunities for people, if there's any honours, prospective honours or PhD students out there, you should um, get in touch with me or my supervisor, Mike Letnick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on Twitter at at Ecologist Mills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be advertising this on behalf of my lab as well. But there's opportunities about nutrient dynamics and using drones and remote sensing and lots of arid field work as well, so you can experience that for yourself. Mm-hmm. So if that interests you, yeah, get in touch. Um, and what's the lab called? Where is it? Uh, it's at UNSW in the Centre for Ecosystem Science. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, if you just search for Mike Letnick, he's the only one in the world, so okay. <laughs> you should be able to find him. So if you want to go That's on a, a choose your own That's adventure a uh, trip, yeah. here's a chance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, we actually have a conference to get to, so we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, okay. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No worries, James. Thanks for the chat. Thank you guys for listening. Check us out on InSituScience.com and we're on at InSituScience on Instagram and Twitter and all that sort of stuff. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. This 
podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. Listener.